This is CNN. Radio. This is CNN Profiles. I'm your host, Michael Schulder, and we're going to start our show in 1952 with a big, mean kid named Chick. Please, Chick, that hurts. Don't do it anymore. Are you going to be on my side if I let you up? Sure, Chick, sure. I'm on your side. Just let me up. I'll do anything you say. Okay, Skipper. You're on my side. Sure, Chick, I'm on your side. Okay, let's go find the other fellas. Hi, son. Hi, Fred. Hi, look what I got. Where'd you get that? Dad gave it to me for my birthday. All my old man ever gave me was a good licking. Just the same, that's where I got it. Get off, I want to ride it. Oh, no, Chick, not my new bike. So Chick there is the main character in a 1952 educational film that you can watch on YouTube called The Bully. And we want to know from Emily Bazelon, is Chick the kind of bully we might still find in the year 2013? He's a classic old-fashioned bully who's really familiar from children's literature and movies. He's the big thug who steals your lunch money. But there are a bunch of different types of bullies today, and he's less common than he used to be. Emily Bazelon is familiar to many of you who read the online magazine Slate. She's a graduate of Yale Law School, and we almost decided not to interview her because bullying has received so much news coverage the past few years. But Bazelon's new book not only attempts to redefine bullying and how we approach it, but is full of parenting insights that go way beyond the subject. Her book is called Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. Emily Bazelon is with us in our Washington, D.C. studio. Thanks for joining us, Emily. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. One of the things that intrigues me about your book, you've, you have really redefined bullying, and, and you maintain that we have defined bullying these days in too broad a fashion. So tell us, what is a bully? A bully is someone who uses physical or verbal harassment repeatedly over time to make another kid miserable. And a key part of this is the power imbalance that bullies and victims have, where you really see one kid or a group of kids who are lording it over another kid chronically. And that's why this makes kids so unhappy and why it's really pernicious. When do we misunderstand bullying? When are we mislabeling things that we call bullying, but it actually is something else? And you you sort of have two terms, that there's the bullying, and then there's what you call, and many of us parents call drama. How do we know the difference? Right. And- Well, drama is a useful word that comes from kids, and they use it most of the time to talk about conflicts that are going in two directions. So in other words, there isn't really a power imbalance. It's just kids fighting. And so I think what sometimes happens is that kids or adults who have their awareness really high about bullying start to call things bullying that are really two-way conflicts. And the problem with that is that it can feel like crying wolf, and it can also make the problem seem incredibly common and intractable and confusing, when really bullying is this much more limited phenomenon. And when we define it properly, it's easy to see that it should be unacceptable and that we can really do something about reducing it. Okay, and one of the things you seem to have discovered in your reporting, and, and, and you've been reporting on bullying for how long now? Three and a half years. So three and a half years. So you, you, must, uh, you must understand it clearly much more now than you did when you started. When you started it, what got you so intrigued to actually sit down and write a book? What was the, what was the tipping point for you? 
I was reading a lot of stories about cyberbullying, and it sounded really alarming. There was a lot of talk of epidemic. And honestly, as a parent, uh, my kids are 10 and 13 now. I just, it made me wonder how the internet is changing what it's like to grow up. And so that was what I initially started investigating. You actually visited Facebook, for example, where, where some bullying, if it's going to happen online, it's going to happen on Facebook, uh, among other places, because it's so popular among teens and, and kids even younger. Tell me what you learned at Facebook and how it can apply to our understanding of bullying. Well, what I learned at Facebook is, you're right, the bullying certainly is taking place online. And it's not that it's isolated there. It's not that there's this new creature called a cyber bully who is only being cruel online. Mostly, kids who bully online are also doing it in person. And it's sort of this other vehicle they have, another world they have in which to explore their aggression. So for companies like Facebook, the challenge is how to enforce the rules they have against bullying and harassment and what what we can do to help kids in navigate this new universe they're entering. So, so you as a parent, give us other parents' advice. Now, I don't know about you, my kids have not been bullied and they don't bully. And this seems to affect a very small portion of the population and yet it's something we have to take seriously. So have you taught your kids about this? How have you handled the issue of bullying with your kids? I definitely talk to my kids about character building and how important it is to stand up for other people or just in small ways show empathy for kids who are more vulnerable. And I think what you said is really key. The rates of bullying overall are not rising. And in fact, most kids are not bullies. They're not victims. And they don't they don't like bullying. They'd rather have less of it. So especially when you show kids that this is an outlier kind of behavior, that makes them even less likely to participate in it. All right, so you have you build your book around several characters, several kids. Uh, give us an example of what the kids you got to know really well have gone through. Take us through a couple of their stories. I wrote about a girl named Monique, and she started seventh grade with a new hairstyle she was really excited about. But unbeknownst to her, there was another girl on her bus who had the same hairstyle. And a couple of older 8th graders started calling Monique a biter, which was their word for copycat. It sounds silly, but it really escalated. And the school officials in trying to deal with it made a couple of key mistakes. You know, after these girls on the bus and also in school had really been mocking and tormenting Monique and humiliating her for a couple of weeks, the assistant principal suggested sitting down and having a conversation as a form of peer mediation. That's a fine thing to do when kids are equals, but when you have have a bully and a victim, the bully is likely to say what the adult wants to hear and then turn around and make things even worse for the victim. So that was one real problem in that story. And it was a story that also moved online with bullying on MySpace and Facebook. And eventually, Monique actually left her school. And that was the end of the story, period? No, that's not the end of the story. She was home for a long time, though. And one thing that her story illustrates is her mother really tried to help her. But going to school officials didn't work. And so her mother and grandmother spoke up at some school board meetings. And unfortunately, that backfired. It made the school board and the leadership very defensive. So instead of getting help, Monique was left to basically stay home for the whole spring and summer and into the fall of eighth grade. And it wasn't until she got the attention of the commissioner of education in Connecticut that she was able to find a new school. But the good part of this story is that Monique has been very resilient. She did much 
much better when she got back into school. She was really ready to make new friends, and she found the acceptance that she hadn't had before. What, what is it that made Monique, who really was bullied, I mean, that wasn't drama, that was bullying, what made her so resilient? Well, she had a really hard time during the year that she was home from school. It's just not a normal thing for most kids to not be socializing regularly with other kids. But a few things went right for her. She had really strong support from her family, which is a crucial buffer. And then she joined a boxing team with a very skilled coach who was also a social worker. And when he realized how unhappy Monique was, he got the girls on the team together and said, look, we need to come through for this kid. One of the girls on the team who had actually been in Monique's class in school reached out to her and they became friends and that made an enormous difference to Monique it kind of brought her back into socializing with her peers you're listening to CNN Profiles we're talking to Emily Bazelon author of Sticks and Stones and uh, those of you who are familiar with Emily's name it's it's probably because uh, uh, you as I uh, read Slate.com where she has written regularly over many years on legal affairs and broader cultural affairs ever since graduating from Yale Law School correct? Pretty much, yes. I started at Slate a few years later. Right. And uh, how did your legal education fit into this? Because in some ways, so you've got the legal education. You're not a practicing lawyer. You've clearly got a lot of empathy. You didn't have any personal connection to bullying, or did you? I did, actually. When I was in eighth grade, I had a moment when my friends essentially fired me. And it was a really painful time in which I spent a lot of time after school crying and really questioned what I had done wrong to alienate them. And then I succeeded in making a new friend, but she had also been dumped by her set of very popular friends. And those girls really humiliated my friend in this public way. And I have a very strong memory of being in the lunchroom, having a moment when I really should have stood up for my friend, but I was too scared. I felt like I was going to be humiliated next, and I didn't do anything. So I think part of my motivation in reading this book is to help other kids do better, but also to understand that confronting a bully is is a really hard thing to do. So you know, clearly, you know, we all have this fantasy. And, and I remember standing by in, I don't know, it was sixth or seventh grade and watching a kid who was consistently bullied by the same kids. And I didn't step in. I didn't feel I had the physical strength to step in, but I didn't step in. And it's, it's a haunting memory. Right. I've really been struck in this book how many people have memories like this. So, so it's a haunting memory. And, and you sort of want to raise your kids to maybe be the ones to step in, except it could be dangerous, right? So, so how do you how do you coach kids to strike that balance? Whether it's whether they're the victims of of mean behavior or whether they're witnessing mean behavior or actual bullying, how do you teach your kids to respond to that? I actually think kids are pretty intuitive about this. They know the difference between a fight between two kids who are just going back and forth and a situation in which there's really a victim. So the way that they get confused is when schools or parents start over-defining bullying, seeing it everywhere. Then they may start essentially doing the same thing. But left to themselves and given sensible directives about what bullying means, I think kids are pretty good judges of this. There is such a valuable section you have at the end of this book, which is a a fairly large reading list uh, of of great stories, great books that are designed to increase the empathy of your child. And tell me how you came across that. Was that that a very intentional search that you did over years? And 
Is there any book that sticks out to you that we should all have our kids read if they're sort of in your your kids' general age group, 10 to 13? It was a real search. I care a lot about children's literature, and I think it's such a powerful way naturally to teach kids about empathy. You don't even have to say the word. You just have to talk to them about the characters they're reading about and try to get them to imagine themselves in those characters' shoes, which I think a lot of kids are actually good at that. One book I've really used successfully with my own kids is called Wonder. It's by an author named R.J. Palaccio. And it's about a boy who goes to regular school for the first time in fifth grade, and he has a serious facial abnormality. And the book is told from his point of view, but also other kids at the school, some of whom have real trouble with his arrival and just find him alarming to look at. And it's a very honest discussion about how kids handle difference. So again, getting back to this, we, again, you had that experience as a child of being bullied. And, and by the way, how did your parents handle that back in what, roughly what year was that? That was about 1984. So 19, about. So you remember exactly. It was 1984. And just because you see it in profiles, we try to understand our guest as much as possible. Give us a sense. How were you growing up? What, what did your parents do for a living? And, and then how did they intercede when you came home with these, with the fact that, as you put it, your friends fired you. My dad is a lawyer, and my mother is actually a psychiatrist, and they gave me good advice. First of all, they just talked to me a lot about how I was doing and really paid attention. They also said, you know, if your friends are not being your friends, you got to find some new friends. That's a painful thing for kids to hear. I was very attached to my friends, but they were right, and it really did help me kind of loosen those bonds and make some new connections. Let me ask you, this this list of literature that you have, uh, you know, clearly designed to to enhance a child's empathy. Would it work for a bully if you gave a bully a reading list? Because it, it sort of shocked me that it, well, it didn't shock me, but the idea that mediation didn't work. You know, when we are taught that look, global problems can often be mediated. You know, through a negotiation, through a discussion, if it's got the right tone. It's not necessarily a zero-sum game, and, and people might just hear something the other side said that could change their mind or, or, or lead to greater understanding. That does not work in these situations, you say. So could literature work? Well, I think it's possible. Most kids are capable of empathy. And what happens to bullies is in the moment, they freeze out those feelings. And they usually have a story they tell themselves about how they're not the bully, the other kid provoked them. They have a long tail that justifies their own actions. And I think that that's part of the reason mediation doesn't work. When they're actually looking at this other kid, they're investing all these negative things into that other kid and blaming them. But if you take them out of the situation with literature, you might be able to change that. You know, it's so interesting because going back to our opening scene in this show and that kid named Chick, and there was a moment uh, in that educational video where he grabs the kid's bike and he said, you know, my father never got me a bike. All he got me, all he gave me was a whooping, which is sort of what you're saying in a sense. Right. And that's typical for some kinds of bullies. They're acting out problems that they've seen at home. I mean, there is a link between bullying and child abuse and domestic violence and seeing violence in the neighborhood. And I think that clip was a good illustration. Right. Well, so in terms of the solution, so we've got the reading list, and, and I really urge people to look at that reading list. It's fantastic and, and, and very detailed, you know, detailed nuggets of why we could want to read a particular book. So there's, there's another important thing that you say you've uncovered 
about how to generally create an atmosphere that's less tolerant of bullying. And it has to do with helping kids understand how rare the phenomenon is. Explain that. That's right. We're talking about something called social norming. So when schools do surveys and then they find that most kids don't bully, they can do things like putting up posters, having messages in the classroom too, in which they say things like 90% of the kids at this middle school don't deliberately exclude other kids. And that helps the kids understand that this is not normal, acceptable behavior. We've seen a lot of success using social norming to reduce the rate of drunk driving among teenagers. That was like kind of a cool thing, I hate to say it, when I was growing up. Now most kids know that it's really toxic to be involved in any way in drunk driving. So we need, and I think we're in the middle of a similar cultural shift about bullying. So given your redefinition of bullying, and basically what you're doing is you're giving us a narrower, more concrete definition so that we can apply solutions that are a little more targeted, right? Exactly. And I think sometimes people feel like bullying is perennial. It's going to be with us forever. Can we really do anything about this? But when you define it more narrowly and you think about how pernicious it is to have this experience, then you think, okay, this is something that's worth addressing. And now let's implement some of the strategies we have, which I write about, which we actually know can really have an impact. This is CNN Profiles. We're talking to Emily Bazelon, author of Sticks and Stones, a a very important new work on on what is bullying, what isn't, and what works to address it. If we were to take one insight that you have in this book and try to create a giant wave so that it affects as many people's perspective on this as possible and really does some good, what should we do? I think we really need to take seriously instilling empathy in our kids. And that can start around the dinner table. Talking to kids, it really begins at home. But schools also increasingly have a role to play. They are raising our kids alongside us. So there's also programs that really get kids to learn how to regulate and express their emotions. To think of this as a serious kind of character building that we are taking on and that we care about just as much as pushing academic achievement. So, so when you watch the headlines, though, you know, I mean, clearly when you were immersed in, in writing this book, I mean, every other day, I mean, there is saturation coverage of bullying. And very often th- th- that saturation coverage got it wrong. Very often some of those stories that were portrayed as bullying stories turned out not to be quite bullying stories. You know, did you feel like shouting back at the screen? Can you think of any examples where you were just watching and saying, whoa, that, that is not bullying? Right. So every time I see a really black and white story where a child's suicide is blamed directly on bullying as if that was the only thing wrong in their life, I want to shout back at the screen because suicide is a really complex phenomenon and there's almost always some underlying mental health history that helps explain what happens. And I worry that if we just have this idea of a bully side, we're going to miss the really important suicide prevention tools that we need. And we're also going to be blaming kids for the death of other kids in a way that's just not fair to them. There's always a debate when you write a book, what should the title be? Did you have did you have a second choice, a third choice? Because I I'm thinking about what we should title this podcast right now, and I don't want to call it Sticks and Stones. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, and I'll tell you why, because I almost feel like because of the saturation coverage and because people are so aware of bullying, maybe there's some bully fatigue out there a little bit. 
Well, so this title was, I'm really bad at thinking of titles generally, but I came up with this title and it stuck. And it seemed like a good way to get at this old childhood idea that words don't hurt, which we really know isn't true anymore. You know, I guess the one big thought I have about this is that rates of violence among kids are down when you look at violent crime, when you look at fighting on school property. And I think that that gives us the wherewithal to talk and think much more now about long-term psychological harm that comes kid to kid. So we're used to thinking about child abuse and really focusing on the home. But some of the findings recently about how serious bullying is in terms of its long-term impact for kids. There's a new study from Duke and 20 years after these children grew up, they're still having higher rates of depression and suicidal thinking and anxiety. And so that suggests this is, if properly defined, a problem that is really worth paying attention to because of the psychological consequences. All right. So second choice title. I, well, oh, you know what? Actually, I don't know if I have anything for you. Well, let me, let me give you a couple. So as I'm thinking and as I'm absorbing all the lessons from this book and listening to you, I'm thinking, okay, what is it that I want for my child? I want them to have as much empathy as possible. Uh, so therefore, I do not want them to be a bully. And that's, uh-huh. fortunately, that's not within the realm of possibility, at least so it seems to me now as the father of three children. Uh, the second thing I want for them is to be bullyproof. There's a program called Bullyproof. Ah, see that? <laughs> okay, so <laughs> so we can't use that because there's already a program. So I, I do want them to be bullyproof, and that gets back to your idea of resilience. Um, and that that's the, that's a whole complex range of things that you can do to encourage resilience and, and sort of pave the way for it. But the third thing is what we talked about as the bystander. Uh, I, I don't quite want them to be bully busters, but... You know, just that little, as you say, those words of encouragement to to make someone who is bullied not feel alone is so critical. Right. It's true. Kids make a huge difference, actually. You know, bullying almost always takes place in front of an audience, but kids only step in about one out of five of the time. When they do step in, though, they can stop bullying half the time. So you are definitely right about the powerful role that kids play when they move from being bystanders to allies or defenders. Now, wait, where did you get that? Because that's fascinating. So when kids step in to stop bullying, they're successful. You said how, how often? Half the time. So there are a few studies where they've actually gone in and watched kids on playgrounds and come up with um, that number. And how, how was stepping in defined? They meant in some way asking the bully to stop. So that was being more directly confrontational. It didn't have to be, you know, going up to the bully and swaggering in some way, but in some way making it clear that the kids didn't think that the bullying was okay. All right. This gets back. I want to tie this back into resilience then because... There's another psychologist at Stanford University. Her name is Carol Dweck. Uh, yes. And you know her. And she... Yep. 40 years of studying what makes some kids resilient, able to bounce back from adversity, and other kids not able to. And and she has found it, so much of it has to do with believing that you have the power through hard work to change your circumstances. And in a sense, that applies to this and what you're telling me. Because if you believe you are helpless in the face of a bully, then, well, you know, the kids who aren't victimized by it aren't necessarily, the, the, the resilience is not necessarily part of the equation. But you talk about this power imbalance that exists between bullies and their victims. If you are a kid who is observing this and knows that statistic, that half the time kids step in 
they can stop the bullying, boy, that can increase a bystander's sense of power and resilience enormously. Exactly. And that's another great example of social norming, where if you put up posters that have that statistic on it and that lesson, as opposed to just the message, don't bully, you could really have a much greater impact. Uh, okay. So this is what we're going to do. So, so this is the message we're going to get out through. We're synthesizing this. People are going to listen. Everybody's still listening to this podcast. If they started, they, of course, could not hit pause. And so, but we are going to get those couple of signs out. We're going to create signs that people can share, and just with those two facts, the the, the facts on, let, let, let's narrow this down, let's synthesize this. So, uh, you know, half of all kids who intervene to try to stop a bully succeed, right? It's right. like it's like the hospital hand washing, and and exactly, and, and, and letting doctors know that. If you wash your hands, you will, before you see a patient, you will reduce the spread of disease by, I think it's 90%. And, and right. it works. So you can do, right. You can do a small thing and have a big effect. And that gives people, I think, a sense of their own possibility for small moments of heroism. Well, listen, uh, Emily Bazelon, author of Sticks and Stones, uh, thank you so much for joining us on CNN Profiles. My pleasure. Thank you. By the way, you can find CNN Profiles on our website, cnn.com slash soundwaves, or download us from iTunes, or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Share. Share.